Tonight, if you turn your Bibles to Joshua chapter 2, Joshua chapter 2, and righteous Rahab. Now, I don't know how many of you are amongst the crowd that very frequently when you see certain names in Scripture, you almost cringe a little bit. Because in this case, and in this book, uh, it's Rahab followed by the prostitute. Now, generally, when we think of that particular situation, there's not much good that's associated with it. But I would ask you this evening to kind of open up your hearts and open up your mind. You see, because Jewish scholars and Christian scholars throughout the centuries have done their best to, to try and erase that word prostitute from our Bibles. And they've substituted things like innkeeper, and uh, hospitality hostess and, you know, all kinds of things in there uh, to try and explain why it is in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus uh, there would be someone whose repute is so ill. And I want to remind you that nowhere in Scripture, neither in the Greek nor in the Hebrew, that particular word that's used here uh, is translated anything other than harlot or prostitute. Rahab was, in fact, a prostitute. She was a woman of ill repute. And here's why this is wonderful as we start. Because if there's hope for the Rahabs, there's hope for you and me. If there's hope for the Bathshebas, there's hope for you and me. If there's hope for the Davids, there's hope for you and me. And as we study tonight, Yes, in fact, Rahab was one of those people with whom we probably wouldn't want uh, our young men associating. But she had a before and an after experience. And tonight we get the after experience. We're not sure when she made her commitment. Scripture doesn't say. But we know this. Real faith produces real works. And as you see someone's life change, it is there that you can really say, you know what, that, that confession, that profession is genuine. And so in Rahab's actions, we see tonight someone who really has her mind and her heart set on doing that which is the will of the Lord. And, and as broken as we may be at times, and let's face it, we're broken, Amen. If there's anybody perfect in here, because you raise your hand, because you're going to get to teach tonight, because you'd be God. We're all broken in some way, shape, or form, every last one of us. And sometimes we get hung up on who's more broken than who. And Scripture simply doesn't present that case. It presents the case that for we are saved by grace and through faith and that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, and none of us can boast in it. So the Rahabs of the world are absolutely able to be used by God. And so are the Jeffs and the Garys and the Connies and the Marys. God can use anyone whose mind is being renewed, whose life is being transformed, and who has a desire to do the things that God tells them to do. And so if you came in and maybe you feel like you're one of those people that God could never use, this chapter is for you because God can use anybody providing that person wants to just simply say yes to Jesus. 
Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, thanks for tonight. And God, thank you for bringing out your people, Lord. Thanks for this opportunity that we've had already to worship you, to offer up a sacrifice of praise. And we pray it's been sweet to your ears, Lord, that your nostrils were filled with the smell of it. And God, we now turn our attention to your word. Would you instruct us by the power of your spirit? Lord, speak your word into us tonight as truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Joshua 2, verse 1, And now Joshua the son of Nun sent out two men from the Acacia Grove to spy out secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. Now the reason that Jericho was so important was Jericho was a fortified city. As we began the study, and I showed you the fortified city of, of Dan, uh, Jericho was very similar. It was a walled city. It was a very large walled city. It was a fortified city in that it had a strong complement of Canaanites that dwelled there. Uh, it's been excavated very significantly. It happens to lay inside of the occupied West Bank, and so it is currently under Palestinian control. It's an Arab city today. But it has been extensively excavated, and the excavations show that this was a city that was to be dealt with uh, in a very serious way from ancient times. And so this was no small task that was being asked of these two men. And in fact, it's been guesstimated by those who do such things, the, the secular archaeologists as well, that the population of that city during these times, the times that these words were written, may well have been in excess of 50,000 people. This was a large city, and it had a lot of very well-armed people in it. And so we begin to see, go, view the land, especially Jericho. And so they went, and they came to the house of a harlot. We don't know why they went there. We're not to concern ourselves with that detail, whether there was a sign. You know, I've heard all kinds of fanciful things. Or, you know, she lived in the red light district of Jericho. We don't know that. Scripture doesn't say. But it was very well known exactly what kind of person she was. But that's not the kind of person she's going to be. And that's the important part for us as we begin tonight. Because all of us have B.C. testimony. Every la- If you gave your life to Christ, you were still a rotten one-year-old if you're two when you find Jesus. Okay? You were a sinner conceived in sin in your mother's womb. Scripture says you were birthed in iniquity. You were born in sin. You still have a sin nature to this day. And if you're here today and you're in Jesus Christ, the only good in you is Him. Amen? Amen. Okay? It's not you. You're not good. He's good in you. Mankind still remains to this day inherently, because your Bible says so, desperately wicked in the heart of man who can even know it. And so let's not get hung up on how bad poor Rahab was. She was bad. Get over it. You were bad. I was bad. Every last one of us has that testimony of what we used to be. And they lodged there. And as you look at this woman, it is also interesting, and you need to know your Bibles to know this. Of course, if you know your Bibles, in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, there's what we call the hall of fame of faith, or the hall of faith, or the role of faith, or whatever you want to call it. So I stuck them all together and made it really long. The hall of fame of faith. There's a, there's a role there of people whom God deemed 
their character so radically changed by faith in him that they're listed as kind of the progenitors, those who we could look to and say, man, if you wanted to see somebody who's of real faith, look at this list in Hebrews chapter 11. And listed there are only two women. And man, they could not be more different. Amen? You you have Sarah, the wife of Abraham, and you have Rahab, the harlot of Jericho. You, you, have, you talk about opposite sides of the tracks. I mean, we still have train tracks in San Bernardino, yeah? Have you been on the other side of the tracks? The other side of the tracks is not good in most of it. And so it's a, it's a pretty picture for us. We, we can kind of get it. There, there are those times when we're disadvantaged simply by where we live and where we grow up. And sometimes we get hung up on those things. And we forget to look at the context that someone grows up in. And we stop having compassion for people. And we lose that ability to look at their life as God sees it. God saw the faith of a prostitute and stuck her name alongside of the faith of the one who would bring to this earth Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And ultimately... It is, in fact, the lineage of Jesus that is in view. Think about it for a second. Rahab will give birth to Boaz, who brings about Obed, who brings about Jesse, who brings about David, who brings about Jesus, who is the Christ, ultimately. And so you can look at Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-grandmother, 17 times removed, however many generations are there, was a harlot. Sometimes in the sanitized version of religion, we don't like to hear those kind of things. But I love to hear those kind of things because it tells me my God's hands are stretched out this wide. He's not looking at a whole bunch of perfect people going, boy, I hope they get it right so I can use them. He's saying, I want to use them and maybe they'll get it right. I want to change them. I want to transform them. Sarah was a godly woman, the founder of the Hebrew race. God used her body to bring Isaac into the world, but Rahab was an ungodly Gentile. She worshipped the Canaanite gods, likely Ashtaroth and Molech. And very, very simply put, she used her body to do everything wrong. And yet there's a key component, a key ingredient, and that is that both of them had great faith. Amen? So if you're here, maybe you know somebody. If you're here, maybe it's you. If you're here and you're listening, and you're saying in your heart and in your mind, it's like, man, God could never use me. Would you please, in Jesus' name, put that thought out of your head? Because God can use anybody. If you look at the greats of faith, I mean, think about David for a moment. An adulterous, fornicating murdering, that's somehow good? Of course it's not good. And Rahab's sin wasn't good either. But it's not the people that are good, it's the God that's in us that's good. And then he transforms us. And all of a sudden we look different, talk different, act different. And so from a divine viewpoint, if you want to look at it that way, Sarah and Rahab shared the very most important thing, and that's faith. That's why Jesus said the faith of a single mustard seed is capable of moving mountains. Can you imagine that? That kind of faith? 
James, as he would remark on Abraham and Rahab, he uses them to illustrate true saving faith as well. So this, this lady is a wonderful example of the kind of faith that we have in the Lord Jesus. And yes, she absolutely messed up her life, but she did not mess up her life so far that faith could not fix it. Sometimes people will ask me, well, how far can you go? You know, if I do this thing 1,742 times, is that too many? It's not a real great question to ask, but the answer is emphatically, God can fix anything if your heart is willing. And if you're willing to change and be transformed and be renewed. And that was Rahab. Her life was a mess. But our God is good at cleaning up messes, amen? He's cleaned up my mess. I used to be a mess. Some of you think I'm still a mess. But the bottom line is, God can clean up a mess if the mess is willing. What kind of faith did Rahab have? Check this out in verse 2. Completely courageous faith. And this is so important because real faith is faith that works. Amen? What does James say? Faith without works is dead. Amen? And in fact, he goes on to say that I will show you my faith by my works. Amen? You get the picture? Rahab had that courageous faith. And it was told the king in verse 2 of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. Now, you need to understand something. In saying country, he was talking about a city kingdom. That was very normal during those days. Uh, Megiddo was one of those city kingdoms. That's where Jeroboam ruled from. Uh, the city of Dan, also a city kingdom. And so they literally were kind of like their own little municipality. And so he's talking about the city that is basically the country uh, that is Jericho. And so the king of Jericho, that would be the what we would call a mayor, sent to Rahab saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all of the country. They, they knew that these guys were up to something. Why? Because remember as the Jews traveled and they, they came to Kadesh Barnea 40 years earlier and they were turned away back into the wilderness. They got right to the edge. They had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They have now come back to the edge of the wilderness. They have wandered into the land uh, that is now modern-day Israel. They were actually in modern-day Jordan. They're on the eastern bank of the Jordan River. But there could have been a mass of near a couple million people ultimately that had made that journey. And so it was no small thing. There was a large crowd of people on the other side of the Jordan. And no doubt those inside of Jericho knew exactly that. And so when the woman took the men, she hid them. And so she said, yes, the men came to me. And here comes something that we're going to get to in, in a moment. And I want to be very, very cautious and extremely careful as we view this particular thing. Because nowhere in God's word does he say, you know, become a liar for Jesus. But that is, in fact, what she does. And I have heard some very fanciful stories about, well, you know, God converted it. It wasn't even a lie. Oh, she lies. There's no question she lies. And God's not approving of the lie. Just like Corey Ten Boom lied. Amen. She hid you and she lied about it. It's a lie. 
But there is a couple of ways that you need to look at that particular act. And one is, whose benefit is it for? Was it selfish or selfless? What was she attempting to accomplish? And so here it is, the woman took these two men and hid them. And she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. Well, that's kind of silly. Pretty sure nobody believed that. And it happened as the gate was being shut, when it was dark, that the men went out. And where the men went out, I do not know. Pursue them quickly. In other words, she's kind of giving them a whole story here. It's like, yeah, they were here and they went out, but if you just chase them, you know, you might, you might be able to overtake them, it says. And in verse 6, but she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax which she had laid in order on the roof. And then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan to the fords. And as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. And so here comes this classic story that most of you probably know. So Rahab hides the spies that have come in to spy out the this city-state of Jericho. And you see, Rahab had put her faith in God. And because she had put her faith in God, she had a choice to make. And I can tell you that you too will be faced with choices in life, sometimes to do that which is patently uh, in Scripture, something that we would say, you know, God doesn't approve of that. There are times when those decisions come to you. And, and I'm not going to be the one to stand here and tell you that I know exactly how you should respond in every single instance. But I know this, that your Bible says that God will give you uh, that utterance in that day when you need to make that decision. So let's not sit here and debate whether she should have or should not have had this particular incident in her life the way it occurred. It's recorded in Scripture for a reason, because she was exercising her faith. The lie could have gotten her killed even more so than turning these guys in. And so she was at great risk to herself in telling this lie. If it was found out that that's what she has done, she surely would have been killed. And so this was not for personal gain. She didn't set out, well, you know, I need to do this. Now, maybe she would have escaped the initial, you know, condemnation of having, you know, hidden them. But the bottom line is that story wouldn't have held up for very long. So she was at great risk in telling this story. The city covered about eight or nine acres at that time. Uh, the walls were 15 feet apart as they've been excavated today. So this is a large city. And around it, uh, the outer walls of the city stretched almost two square miles. And so this is a large area. And so 40 years before, as the 12 spies had gone in, you remember the story, uh, Joshua was one of them. And so this was a, a specific situation that Joshua had quite a bit of ability to relate to. He had been in this group before. Now, you remember that 12 spies went in. Amen? Ten of them came back with a report like, oh, no, we're not going there. And Joshua and Caleb came back with the report. So what does Joshua do? He gets right to the heart of the matter. He says, skip sending the 12. We'll send two. We can count on them. Because, as I said last time, the rule of the majority very often is not going to get you much. You're, you're, you're going to find out that if you give a group of 12 people a decision, it's going to take a very, very, very long time to get much done. doesn't mean that committees are, are necessarily wrong, but if you want to see that in action big time, look at our Congress. Amen? Think about it. There's a 100 senators. They can't get anything done. 
There's over 500 in the House of Representatives. They can't get anything done, and yet they're some of our best and brightest. And so God sends just two, and he says, go spy out the land. You see, God, in fact, doesn't work the way we work, does he? God very often, just as 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, or in verse 27 to 29, use, indeed, the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. Amen? I don't know about you, but I would have sent, you know, I'm thinking of this from a military standpoint. You know, I'm dropping in some Army Rangers, some Force Recon Marines, a few Navy SEALs, and I'm sending them with laser targeting devices, and, you know, I'm just going to take them out. That's how I see it. But God isn't, God isn't the God who's bound by our human means and our human capabilities, our human possibilities. God was doing this as an expression of faith for the people. The people were going to have to trust God. That's why your Bible says without faith, it is actually impossible to please God. And that is the position that we're in, whether we like it or not. You know, as I get older, I can tell you there are a lot of things I look at that I once thought I knew that I now know I not only didn't know, but had no clue. I can also tell you there are things that I thought I had under control that not only did I not have under control, I was on the opposite side of the spectrum, completely outside of the control of those things that I thought I controlled. The bottom line is, is only God is in full control. And only God is the answer most of the time to the things that uh, we have need of understanding. When we look at Jesus' life, why do you think it was so amazing that he was a friend to publicans and sinners? Why do you think the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin were constantly hounding Jesus? Look, you eat with all these rotten, filthy people. You hang out with tax collectors. To them it made no sense. I think God likes using tools that don't make sense. And I can tell you one reason why. Because he then gets the glory for it. Because humanly, if he had sent the best negotiator, maybe Joshua himself goes. I mean, after all, he is a true leader. We know that from chapter 1. Maybe he could have negotiated peace. That isn't what God was going to do. And God wanted him to walk by faith. And that faith needed to be courageous. God's providence at work causes us to understand that these things are, are how God works. It's how he orchestrates things. And so I believe that Rahab was likely well-known in that area of the world. I also believe that in sending in just two spies, uh, that God was saying, look, here's, here's the deal. I don't need 100,000 guys to go in. I don't need the best and the brightest. I just need somebody with faith. I need somebody who will go do what I ask him to do and be unafraid, be courageous. Rahab's faith was amazing. And really it is the faith of Rahab that's in, in view here. A second thing that we can see here is that Rahab showed consistently confident faith. She trusted God, period, all the time. And in every single one of these situations, notice picking up in verse 8, And now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof. Now bear in mind, she's already been confronted by the authorities. She's already been questioned. She's already told the lies. She's up to it up. She's in it up to here. Amen. 
She's in deep trouble. You know, I don't know how many of you have ever been in that position to where you know, you know, one more thing and your goose is cooked. Her goose is cooked. I mean, she's on the edge. She's like walking that thin line. Before they lay down, she come up on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Now imagine this. She lives inside the city. She's actually talking to the enemy. But her faith is so strong in Jehovah God that she says, I know you guys, the two of you are right and the king's wrong. Do you have that type of consistently confident faith? Sometimes I I get in trouble, and you guys all know this that have been here for a while, because I take very strong positions, biblical godly positions, on moral political issues. I, I will dare to tell you that I believe there's no such thing as a practicing homosexual Christian. Those things are mutually exclusive, period. I don't care how politically correct it is. You cannot stick your finger in God's chest and go, I am gay and I am a Christian. You can't do it because God's word says so. It's not politically expedient to say those things. Does that mean that person is beyond the reach of God's grace? Of course not. Does it mean that someone can struggle with something and and never, ever get to, to, to the Lord? Of course not. If you're desirous of a relationship with the Lord, you can struggle with most anything. But you cannot tell God what his word is going to say. And if his word says it, that's our opinion as Christians. That's the type of confidence that Rahab has. She's saying, look, I know your God is right, and my people are wrong. Same is the case for abortion. The death of the unborn is a blight on our land. It's sin, period. These things have a biblical, moral directive from God. And Rahab sees these things from that perspective alone. She says, what God wants, God should have. It's his way or the highway. I know the Lord's given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen on us, because all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. She, she says, I know in my heart of hearts that what you're doing is what God wants. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. Family of God, is your testimony that strong? That when you go someplace, that what is known of you precedes you actually getting there? That your testimony is that strong as you wander through the land? That someone knows who you stand for? Because the testimony of what you believe has beaten you to where you're going to go. That's a pretty strong, consistent faith. That's someone who has made it a habit of wherever they've been. And of course, this is a large group, but they are giving testimony that the Lord delivered them out of Egypt, period, miraculously. It's strange how after sometimes people will walk with the Lord that all of a sudden it's almost as if they saved themselves. You know, oh, well, yeah, you know, God had something to do with it. But, you know, I was, 
It's just, you know, God wanted my gifts or God wanted my skills. God wanted my talents. God knew that I would be so great at this thing that he naturally had to save me, of course. God's been speaking through donkeys for millennia. And he doesn't need us. He just delights to use us. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you have utterly destroyed. You see, as you take up the banner of the Lord, you do what the Lord asks. The Lord is your defense. He's your voice. He speaks for you. He speaks ahead of you. He speaks behind you. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. And neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. Why? For the Lord your God. You get it? God got the glory for it. For the Lord your God. very clear what's being said here in the Hebrew language. The, the one who is your master, who is your God singularly, he has done these things. He is the God of heaven above and on earth beneath. He says, we've been worshiping the wrong God. We've been doing the wrong thing. And there's only one way to explain what's happened to you. And that's because your God is actually God. You talk about consistent faith. I want to just draw your attention to, to one simple thing before we move on any further. Faith is only as good as its object. Do you understand what I'm saying? There are a lot of people who have faith in faith. There are people who have faith in hope. There are people who have faith in and God help them in our government. There, there are people who have faith in their bank accounts. There are people who have faith in the fact that they're great investors. Most people have faith in something. But your faith is only as strong as the object of your faith. And in this case, it's very clear who that object is. Your God, he is the God of heaven and of the earth beneath. That's exactly one person. First person of the Trinity, God the Father. He says, you're God. That's the only one. And in that case, Rahab's faith is similar to that of Noah. Have you ever pondered Noah's study, you know, his, his whole life for any length of period of time? Think about Noah for a second. I mean, and please don't go watch the movie. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. I like Russell Crowe, but... Nothing biblical about it. But the life of Noah, think about it for a second. Noah, I want you to build an ark. Oh, sure, Lord. Why? How come? Well, because it's going to rain a lot. And the water's going to build up, and you're going to need one. And so for a hundred years, there's Noah. <laughs> For a hundred years, mocked, humiliated, degraded, laughed at, scorned. Sure, I, I can imagine. I can picture there being bleachers next to the ark, and somebody selling tickets. Yeah, let's see where he gets today. You know, and they just all go sit and watch. No, oh, he's going to put another log on the ark today. It was absurd. 
It was ridiculous. It was a home-built boat next to no water. It's like, where are you moving that thing, Noah? But Noah trusted God. In spite of what he saw. In spite of, check this, his experience. Noah had no maritime experience, okay? None. Zero. Zip. He didn't come from a long line of sailors. His father was not Blackbeard. He, he, he didn't, you know, he wasn't like, oh yeah, there was Noah's the first boat yard over here, and my dad built boats, and we all went sailing together. It was in spite of his experience. Rahab trusted the same God. Now check out her experience. She was in a fortified city with a legitimate army, and you got a bunch of hobos on the other side of the river who've been wandering around the middle of nowhere forever. You know, ooh, radical army. It's like, yeah, ooh, scare me. But because their faith and trust, and her faith and their trust was in God, all of a sudden they became a formidable force. Just like that ark became the only way of salvation. Amen? That's faith. That's what faith does. And so it's the object. And when that happens, when the object of your faith is the Lord God, then everything about you is involved. Notice how Rahab's actions, Rahab's words, Rahab's emotions, Rahab's mind, every single part of Rahab is involved in this process. She's doing what she should do. She's thinking what she should think. She feels what she should feel. And and she is absolutely experiencing what she should experience. The whole being's involved. Faith is only as good as its object. That's why if you're resting and trusting in the U.S. government, you're just loopy. Because there's nothing to hope in, amen? They can't figure out what color to paint their offices much less how they're going to solve most of the problems that we have. That's not to say we shouldn't pray for them, and it isn't the best form of government on earth. But if you're trusting in them, we're in trouble. I'm trusting in God to change them. Matter of fact, I'm trusting in God to get most of them out of Washington, D.C. We kind of need to start over. Since the initial reports... The Lord's power had traveled to the people of Canaan. They were afraid. They understood. I want you to see four things here. She believed in one God. There's only one. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Amen? There's only one God. Look at Ephesians 4. One faith, one Lord, one hope, one baptism, one Lord overall. Same subject matter. There's only one, there's always only been one God. She believed in one God. She believed that person, that God was her personal God. Not some, you know, idol someplace. The Canaanites believed that idols actually could be living. And so when they carved something into an idol, ultimately they believed it could get arms and legs and do something. She believed in the true God, the personal God. She believed that God was the God of Israel. 
Not limited to just that one nation, by the way, because she was a Canaanite. Sometimes we get kind of stingy with our God, don't we? There's no Baptist God and Episcopalian God and Calvary Chapel God. There's just one. One Lord over all. And she believed that He was a Creator, the God of heaven and earth. It's a great, that's an awesome God, amen? That great and awesome God can do anything, folks. We need to remember that. And here we have somebody that you would think wouldn't come to that conclusion quite so easily, and yet she does. Sometimes we think that great faith is reserved for great people of faith, don't we? You know, somehow you go to faith school or, you know, you get a faith degree or you go someplace and you you study under someone else who has great faith and all of a sudden it can be translated to you or given to you or you get a, you know, a shingle you hang on your wall that says, I went to the faith academy and so I have lots of faith now. It's not how it works. We're to ask for faith and he gives it liberally to those who ask just like he does wisdom. A third thing here, Rahab had compassionately caring faith. You see, real faith works, doesn't it? Real faith isn't afraid to get dirty. Real faith actually accomplishes things. And it is others-centered. If your faith is stingy, if your faith is greedy, if your faith is centered on you, I would say you need to have some faith lessons from somewhere, someone. Because real faith is others-centered. Notice what happens here, verse 12. And now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token. He says, look, I've shown you favor. I've gone out on a limb here. I've done what I believe God wanted me to do. Spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. And so the men answered her. And now this is faith's response. This is how God responds to our cry. Rahab is concerned, rightly concerned, because what she's done can get her and her family killed. And so she inquires of these spies. The men answered her, Our lives are yours. We're we're joined with you in this. When we say that there's one faith, one Lord, one hope, one baptism, one Lord over all, we're all in it together, family. There isn't isn't two churches. I had a young man stop by today and came into my office doing a, a college report, and he was in comparative world religions, and we had a nice conversation about that. And, and in and sitting there talking to him, you know, all roads don't lead to heaven. And he asked, what constitutes church membership? And I just simply said, believing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what puts you in the church. There's exactly one. There, there's all kinds of different representations of that church. There's different flavors of that church. But there really is exactly one church. And we're all members of it. Rahab somehow 
in her very infantile stage of development in, in her faith. She's getting an a extreme lesson on this. Our lives are yours. If none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be, when our Lord has given the land, given us the land, that we will deal kindly and truly with you. They're basically saying, look, you're part of us. You're, you're joining us in, in the Lord's battle here, because it was really God's fight. It wasn't the Jews' fight. It was God's fight. God was the one that was motivating him. You see, they were going to give her a part, and they gave her a guarantee. And if you look at your Bibles, you find covenants or guarantees throughout it. And it's very interesting to me that in all of those covenants and all of those guarantees, that, that there are all kinds of things that you can look at and go, well, you know, how does the Lord work those things out? We don't know. We just trust God. As I've shared with you before, I don't have a special phone on my desk that goes directly to the Lord, you know, that you don't have. You can dial him up, too. God can speak to you and God can work through you. And God can use you just as much as he can use me. You, you have confidence in the one true God just like I have confidence in the one true God. And he can speak into your life the things that need to happen as well as he can speak into mine. Now, does he use the church in a very unique way? Yes, he does. But it's not the only way that he works. And that's why churches that tell you you have to be a part of their church in order to be a part of the church are wrong. Because if they're part of the church, and you don't need to be a part of their church to be a part of their the church. Because the church is a lot bigger than any building. We wouldn't all fit. It's the bride of Christ. And so they give her a, a sign, if you will. Everybody knew that, that that price had been paid by her, and so they're, they're going to now give her something that's a sign. She's asked for something simple. Are you bold enough to ask God for some simple things? I want to encourage you to do that because God knows that we struggle with faith. And I'm not telling you to, you know, test God in absolutely every single area of your life and to not trust him unless he gives you some kind of sign. But in this case, God knew exactly where she was in faith, and God knew that she needed some type of sign. And so, verse 15, she let them down by a rope through the window of her house and onto the city wall, for she dwelt on the wall. And it appears that she had her own house. She wasn't living with mom and dad. And so uh, she had made a request even to take care of her parents, and she didn't live with them. She could have simply asked for herself. And she said to them, Get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you, and hide there for three days. And when the pursuers have returned afterward, you may go your way. And so the men said to her, We will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you, to which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land you bind this line of this scarlet cord on the window through which you let us down. And unless your father and your mother and your brothers and all that you have of your father's household come into your own home. The godly heritage of a home that loves the Lord. You know, I'm sure you probably all have friends to where maybe there's a single soul Christian in it. And the rest of the family is not doing so well with the things of the Lord. It's a dangerous place to be for the body of Christ. And so they say to her, no, you bring them into your house because your house has you in it. 
And it is you that hears from the Lord, not them. So you bring them to your house, that they might hear the truth through you. And oh, by the way, put the scarlet cord out of your window. And so it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house and into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we will be guiltless. He said, look, this isn't going to stop the war. Have you ever noticed that when you give your life to Christ, the war actually doesn't stop, it gets worse? That that when you all of a sudden decide in your own heart and in your own mind that you're going to serve the Lord Jesus, that the battle actually intensifies? It, It is false faith that believes God is going to protect you from everything that's ever going to occur in this world. It's not true faith that does that. True faith believes what Scripture says, that in this world you will have tribulation. But Jesus said, know this, I've overcome the world. So you stay in me. You stay in that house that's guarded by this scarlet cord. And if whoever is with you in that house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And this is really a picture, same picture, by the way, that the Jews had already experienced once, hadn't they? Look at the picture that's here. What color is the cord? It's scarlet. What color was the blood on the doorpost? Scarlet. What happened if you went outside? You died. What happened if you stayed in? You were saved. I'm not saying stay where the blood's going to cover you. Stay where you're going to be protected in faith. Covenant keeping faith. Rahab does exactly what these men say. Does exactly. She says, hey, your God is the God. I'm going to do exactly what you say. It's kind of a problem with the body of Christ, isn't it? Well, I'll do most of what the Lord says. I'll kind of sort of figure out a way I can kind of look like I'm being pleasing to the Lord, but actually I'm going to do what I want to do. Can I tell you that's a recipe for disaster? Because there is nothing more miserable than a Christian who tries to figure out how to get around what God's word says. You can meet them by the droves. Just come to my office. You can sit in the corner. I'll pretend you're not there. It's not a good thing to try and mess with God. And if you tell this business of ours, and we'll be free from this oath to which we've made you swear. And then she said, according to your words, so be it. It's interesting. The original Hebrew here actually says, as you have said, so it shall be. As you have said, so it shall be. And, of course, the inference is, look, if you're God's people and God told you to say that, I'm going to do it. It's kind of weird, quite frankly. Think about it for a second. Oh, yeah. Ooh, really afraid of that scarlet cord up there. You know, like the army coming in somehow is going to be frightened of a little piece of rope. There are a lot of people on this earth that kind of almost have that viewpoint, amen? They trust in their little lucky rabbit's foot, their icons. They got their picture of Moses and Jesus and Mother Mary and all kind of plastered all over their cars or driving down the road. True story. You know, my brother just retired from CHP. He told me a story of a guy who actually lost an eye. Now, it's not funny that that happened, but it was a merry idol that came off of his dash in a crash, and it stuck right in his eye. 
and said, hmm, probably not so good that that was on your dash. And the guy actually told my brother he was afraid to take it off because he thought he would crash. Now, I'm not doing that to mock, but think about it for a second. Are you trusting a piece of plastic? You're trusting the true and the living God. Rahab trusted the true and the living God. You need to trust the true and the living God. Not a hunk of rope, not a picture of the Pope, okay? Picture of the Pope isn't going to do that. Hunk of rope isn't going to do it. Rabbit's foot isn't going to do it. Your St. Christopher medal. All of us who were born back in the 50s and the, the surfer culture, we all had our St. Christopher, the patron saint of all surfers. I still went over the falls, still pitched it, still got tumbled in the washing, still nearly drowned, didn't do anything. Matter of fact, the only reason we wore them is you were supposed to give them to your girlfriend if you were going steady. You need to trust in the true and the living God, not some hunk of silver around your neck. Amen? And then she sent them away and they departed. And she bound the scarlet cord to the window and they departed and went there unto the mountain. They stayed there for three days. Notice how they do exactly what they have committed to do too. To be a believer in Christ means to be committed to the commands and the covenants of God. What God has said, that's what we do. And as they're exchanging these things, it's really a type, it's a picture of how the Lord works in our lives. He uses people to speak. He mostly uses his word to speak. He uses angels to speak. He uses the Holy Spirit to speak. But he mostly uses his word to speak. And when his word speaks, it's not an option for the body of Christ whether we're going to believe it and do it or not. We do it. Period. And we do it with a whole heart. And we do it with consistency and constancy. And with absolute abandon. And they did this until the pursuers, pursuers returned. And they, the pursuers brought and sought along the way, but did not find them. And so the two men returned, descended from the mountain, and crossed over. And they came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and told, them, told him all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, truly, the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed, all of the inhabitants of the country are faint hearted because of us. You you see, this was a, a covenant faith that they had. And as God made that first covenant with Eden, with, with, excuse me, with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, as, as he makes that, he kept it. Amen. What he said, he did. He made a covenant with Noah. What he said, he did. Amen? Made one with Abraham. What he said, he did. Amen? With Israel. What he said, he did. With David. What he said, he did. God never fails to keep his covenants. And so we need to keep our word to him. One of the things that happens when we give our life to Christ is we say, Jesus, you are now my Lord. The closest translation that we have of that word is master. Master tells the slave what to do, amen? And the slave is supposed to do it, amen? Just for a moment, put yourself in that position. The slave comes in, the master says, well, I'd kind of like you to do the floors this week. Could you do that? And the slave just says, no, I'm not going to do that. 
I refuse. The master has the point at that right at that time to do whatever he wants to that slave. Amen. Now, in mercy, God does not give us what we deserve. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. And in grace, he gives us things that we do not deserve. Amen. But it doesn't mean that we're ever relieved from doing what he says. Just because he's merciful and just because he's gracious and just because he's kind and tender-hearted and loving towards us, we are still supposed to do what he says. Out of that obedience to him as our God. So I've shared with you so many times, so many people want the blessings of God without obedience to God. And you will never have them. If you want the blessings of God, you need to be obedient to God. He may providentially give you things you don't deserve, but if you want the deepest blessings of the Lord himself, you need to be obedient to what he says. Because he's going to keep his covenant. And because he's a covenant-keeping God, we're to be a covenant-keeping people. So when I say yes to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, he calls the shots. I do what he says. I stay in that sweet spot with him. Before the two spies left Rahab's house, they, they reaffirmed this covenant with each other. And so that rope reminded them of the blood of, of the Lord, the blood of the doorpost, the things that would come later as Jesus gave his life a ransom for many. And as they were let down on that rope, the sure, the sure sign was this scarlet rope. It's important to catch the picture here. It was not by faith in the rope. It was faith in the covenant. Amen? It's not by the sign itself. That's why people who, you know, trust in some cross that they have hanging around their neck, that's just a sign. The covenant was made in his blood. Amen? We celebrate that when we take communion, don't we? This is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the remission of sin. Is that not what Jesus said? As often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you do remember my death. That's the picture here. God made the covenant. The covenant we keep by faith. There's nothing we can do to deserve it. There's nothing we can do to earn it. Nothing we can do to physically keep it ourselves. We simply do what God's called us to do, which is to live lives that are well-pleasing to him. That's what Rahab did. And because of it, you'll find her name there in Hebrews 11. Because of it, she is in the lineage of Jesus himself. She was a woman of faith. And as these men returned to the camp, they gave this report They weren't ready to cross over the river just yet. We're going to find out why next time. But they had a real example of real faith. And it was righteous Rahab. Now to us, we look at it kind of, her? Hallelujah, her. Because I'm pretty sure there are a lot of people that have gone, ooh, him? Probably most people look at all of us and go, ooh, them? Praise God for saving faith and saving grace. Amen? Amen. May we have faith like Rahab. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for this time tonight, for your graciousness, Lord, that's given us in our in our walks with you. And God, we pray that as you uh, put that stamp of approval on our lives by your spirit, that we'd walk worthy uh, of the calling that you placed upon our lives as your kids, inheritors of the kingdom. Lord, we think about what lies ahead for us as you take us home to heaven. It's just staggering. God, one day we're going to meet Rahab face to face, Lord. Going to be able to chat with her about what it was like on that day. She's going to get to recount how faithful you were. Lord, may we have stories to tell like that when we get there. Lord, would our faith be so well known in this world that our reputation in Christ would precede us. Lord, would you be glorified in what we do and what we say, how we act. How we love, Lord. Help us to love like you love. We admit that's hard at times. God, change our hearts, transform us, renew us, refresh us, bless us, God. Thanks for the time this evening, and we pray that you would just use us. God, as you use these two spies, as you use this wayward woman, Lord, and you made her an example of what faith can do. God, would you please use us. Help us to be faithful to you because we know you're faithful to us. We bless you, praise you, we thank you. We ask all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.